All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Including women in the... Including women in... (laughs) Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 146 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and since we last recorded, two outrageous things have happened to me. One, I've developed a horrible allergy to red wine, which is very much my booze of choice. And two, I've managed to get sunburned in March. What the actual fuck? Tell me about the red wine allergy. How is that manifesting? My lips swell up the next day. And so for the day after, I look bloody gorgeous. But the day (laughs) after that, they crack and split and are incredibly painful for the next three or four days. And also my throat swells up a bit. I became intolerant to red wine in my late 30s and it just made me throw up. My commiserations, Nick. You can't see my face on the podcast, but it's one of horror. I am aghast at both. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and apologies for the negativity, but I want my old life back. Yeah. Fair enough, mate. To be honest, considering I'm always banging on about how relentlessly Pollyanna I am and how I have the ability to put up with just anything, I thought it might actually be helpful to say to other people, yeah, I really fucking hate it too. It's been a year. I don't want to be here anymore. It's my birthday this week and nothing would delight me more than to record this and then go for a pint with two of my favourite women. But alas, we must wait. It's not too much longer, guys. 
hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Four weeks or something till I can go to the pub with my friends, isn't it? Oh, at least. And sit yeah, outside. Yeah. 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 I don't actually know. April the 14th? 12th, 14th. 12th, I think. What's mm, happening April on April? I thought, I'd, a pub's opening on April the 12th? Outside in gardens, if things go to plan. Well, that's sooner than I thought. A friend of mine sent me a timetable that someone had made. Oh, and yes. uh, it's just got like a little list of dates and then what you can do on those certain dates. I'm going to print it out and stick it on my wall. I'm Was s- that friend of yours, Boris Johnson? Because he certainly <laughs> had one of those. Tell you what, it's a friend who would be doing a way better job than Boris Johnson would. So any of your friends, basically. Yeah, any of, yeah. I'm Jen Offord and I've been blocked by Piers Morgan. You need to get that on a T-shirt. I know. And do you know what? I, I'll tell you for why I've been blocked by Piers Morgan. It's because I was criticising him for saying that he didn't believe that Meghan Markle was suicidal. And I caveated this as someone who has lost someone to suicide. Sorry, this is a bit of a miserable opener, isn't it? Anyway. Um, Ta-da! <laughs> thanks for joining us, guys. I'm sure you're very happy to have done so. That's all right. The Bush Telegraph will pep them right up. Oh, Abs- no. oh, yeah. I caveated it with this, that I think it's, you know, it's very irresponsible to say something like that on national television. I stand by that. I didn't tag him in it. I didn't say anything abusive. So that man also, obviously, searches his own name on Twitter. There you go. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, though. Nor me. I bet he shouts his own name at the point of, never mind, carry on. Hannah, say something. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Oh, that image. Later on. I speak to Harriet Minter about a year of working from home and what it's taught us about how and where we work best. Jennifer Utley, executive story producer at Ancestry, gives us some hot tips to help us discover more about the women in our family trees. Guess what? What? I knew this was true and I didn't say it in that family tree section, but going online has reminded me of why it's just amazing (laughs) seeing it actually the fact there. There are two sisters in my family who were both bigamously married to the same man. (gasps) Incredible scenes. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) And in Rated or Dated, we're staring dumbfoundedly at an excessive number of Confederate flags as we watch Chesney Hawks in 1991's Buddy's Song. Ah, a wholesome, heartwarming message about toxic masculinity for all the family. Plus tips. (laughs) But first, let's talk male violence committed against women. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Don't worry if you miss a chance to scream, for fuck's sake, into the sky. There will be another one along in a minute. You will by now have undoubtedly heard of the tragic case of Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old woman from London who was found dead last week after going missing on her way home to Brixton from a friend's house in Clapham. The discovery of Sarah's body was the grim conclusion to a week-long search and serving police officer Wayne Cousins has been charged with Sarah's kidnap and murder. Since Cousins has been charged and criminal proceedings are now active, there's not much else we can say at this stage, although you will most likely have seen plenty of hot takes on social media and indeed published in some newspapers. This is a really high profile case and I'm sure many of you listening will feel sadness and anger and much, much more besides as Mick and I are about to cover. But please, please, please be careful with what you post on social media. And if you know someone who isn't being careful, have a word. 
It's important to say this because it's enshrined in UK law that everyone is entitled to a fair trial. If a situation arises where it's deemed that the accused would no longer be able to get that because, for example, public opinion had been swayed by what's been written about them, the whole case falls apart. And that's potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of work that goes down the pan. But more importantly than that, the family of the victim might never find out what happened to their loved one. And we've chatted to excellent human and media law expert Holly Powell-Jones on the podcast about this before. And we'll retweet that episode after this so you can have a listen. But if you've not heard it already, you need to know that you are legally liable for what you say on Twitter and other social media platforms. So not only could a case be fucked up, you could find yourself in very hot water too. And I think it's probably a good rule for life in general, to be honest. But if you're wondering, should I tweet this? The answer is probably always going to be no. (laughs) Definitely. I think that goes up there. There's like a couple of major rules for everyone in life. And I think, should I tweet this? Probably not. It's up there with (laughs) don't be a dick. Absolutely. Yeah. So as Jen just mentioned, Sarah's murder has elicited a collective howl of grief and rage from women. On Saturday the 13th of March, I went to Clapham Common to what would have had the Met Police facilitated it, been a vigil for Sarah. It changed into something different, part vigil, part protest and part police violently hauling women away. Mm. It wasn't great PR for the Met Police is all I'm going to say about that at the moment, but it was also really very emotional. This outpouring of women's sadness, fear and fury has also, so very predictably, triggered a massive game of dickhead bingo. Jen, let's play. Oh, good. Hashtag not all men. Who's got hashtag not all men? Well, you know, hashtag not all 14th century rats, but there be plague. Okay, I am being flippant, but wowzers, how is not all men even still a thing? Of course it isn't all men, but it is almost always men. And women don't know which men are decent and which men are going to assault, rape or kill them. Right, next one. Men get attacked too. Yes, yes they do. I am giving out zero prizes, Jen, but can you guess who men mostly get attacked by? Um, men? Correct! Meaning it's not really the gotcha it's often presented as. Next one, what was she wearing? Well, quite. What was a woman doing walking home from her friends at night with headphones in wearing clothes? Oh, clearly she's asking for it, mate. Look, I, I, I don't even have the energy to go into this one. It is exhausting. But let's make it as simple as I can. Women can be as careful as humanly possible. Trying not to get assaulted, raped or killed is a priority. And most of us don't even realise the energy we're expending on this until something like what's just happened triggers a mass conversation. But it is beyond our control when a man decides to assault, rape or kill us. And finally, in dickhead bingo, well, most women are killed in the home slash by someone they know. That is true. And also, not as comforting as you seem to think it is. Hmm. It also doesn't mean that the streets aren't dangerous for women as well. They are. But, you know, the hot takes didn't just come from men. Yeah, of course, it's not all men. Hashtag not all menning. Let's go live to the Twitter feed of Davina McCall. Mick, no swearing, please. (laughs) Female abduction slash murder is extremely rare, said the television presenter. Yes, we should be vigilant when out, alone. But this level of fear-mongering isn't healthy. And men's mental health is an issue as well. Calling all men dangerous is bad for our sons, brothers, partners. 
I cannot and will not abide with your no swearing rule, Jen, because Jesus suffering fuck, Davina. Men's mental health is an issue and it's one we cover extensively on Standard Issue. But seriously now, if you think talking about women's safety on the streets is bad for men's mental health, what in the cock-rollicking thunder junk do you think it does for women's mental health every single day? There's so much to say on this, but I do not understand how we have this case and like how have we made men the victim here it's it like honestly it's it is astonishing but also as someone whose brother did die by suicide i feel that i can say with a degree of confidence that he didn't kill himself because people are mean about men and it is entirely more likely that it was because of the messages that society gives men about how they are supposed to experience and express emotions that are utterly toxic and a massive factor at play here too like that is completely relevant in the discussion yeah. about men's violence towards women absolutely we talk about men's mental health all the time women talk about it all the time not men women i would like to hear more men talking about male violence against women in the way that women talk about men's mental health now, I want that in some sort of game of bingo. I am well on board. That is much more, you know, our speed. I would say, however, that I saw a lot of three women a week, Davina, in the replies, when actually that figure also brings into play women killed by male violence in the home, not on the streets. And I point this out because there's no need to conflate figures regarding male violence against women. She's wrong without doing that as is Metropolitan Police Chief Cressida Dick, currently feeding us the narrative that it is, quote, incredibly rare for a woman to be abducted from our streets. It's not incredibly rare. Is it unusual? Yeah, but it's not incredibly rare. That's so dismissive. Thanks to the incredible work done by the Femicide Census, we know that stranger killing accounts for 8% or 1 in 12 of all killings of women by men. Between 2009 and 2018, 119 women were killed by men who were not known to them. Yes, a woman is more likely to be killed by someone she knows. Every three days in the UK by a man and every four days by a partner or former partner. But our streets are far from safe for women. And that's just me talking about risk of death. If we're going to bring rape and sexual assault into the equation, the numbers leap up. And now seems like a good time to mention sexual harassment and the results of a survey by UN Women, which were published last week, which found that 97% of women aged between 18 and 24 said they had been sexually harassed, while 80% of women of all ages said they had experienced sexual harassment in public spaces. Fucking hell! Like, I'm surprised, but I'm also so unsurprised. Yeah, yeah, and it just adds to the exhaustion, doesn't it? So what can we do? Keep fighting. That's a big one. Keep getting our voices heard. Keep up the conversations and have those conversations with our boys. Talk to our boys. I shared a video from Daniel Sloss on Standard Issues Twitter timeline. It's from his show X, which sadly isn't available in the UK, but it is well worth your time. Have a watch. Share it with the men in your life. Encourage them to share it with the men in their lives. I've thought this a lot over the years and it strikes me that we've become resigned to the fact that we have to talk to our girls about them potentially, probably being victims of male violence at some point in their lives and all the very many steps they should take to try to avoid something they ultimately have no control over. 
And yet the idea that we need to talk to our boys about them potentially being perpetrators of male violence remains unbearable. And that has to change. We can't stay in a world where we're okay acknowledging so many girls and women will be victims of male violence, but not okay with acknowledging that that means some boys and men will be perpetrators. And we need to shout about all the women killed by male violence. Yes, and another vital conversation that's come up over the last week is around who gets reported on. The hunt for then-missing Sarah Everard went on for a week and was headline news until and after its tragic conclusion. But what about Joy Morgan, the 20-year-old black woman reported missing in February 2019, two months after she was last seen, and her body eventually found in Woodland in October the same year? What about Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry, two sisters aged 27 and 46 respectively, also women of colour, stabbed to death in a park and where deeply disturbing allegations have been made that serving Met Police officers took selfies with their bodies with eight officers investigated for alleged misconduct. Why have their killings not sparked public outrage or interest? I'm sure racism or, at the very least, unconscious bias comes into play here, but not just by the media. As we have said on the podcast before, we are all the media now. We set the agenda and we are accountable too. And that means we maybe have to have some uncomfortable conversations with ourselves if we want to make sure that all women's lives are valued, that all crimes are investigated properly and that we all have equal access to justice. Yeah, you cannot fail to notice the disparity in coverage and it is bullshit that needs to change. And I actually think we can see that as something positive as in it is something that we can all help with. I would add that sometimes we, as humans, are just raw and reactive, and it feels like Sarah's killing has happened at a time when no one's feeling great. We've all been inside for way too long, and I, I do wonder whether the idea of that random aggression against someone just trying to get home has hit even more of a nerve than usual. I'm going to end this week's Bush Telegraph by saying our hearts go out to the loved ones of Sarah and all the women of every intersection dead, raped and assaulted by men. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Yeah, I think we've covered it. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined over Zoom by Harriet Minter, author of Working From Home, How to Build a Career, you love when you're not in the office, which is a book that is available to buy now. Thank you for joining us, Harriet. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Because we're talking working from home, and I'd like it, this to be a realistic <laughs> idea of working from home. Both of the cats are trying to get on the desk. The neighbour is doing some building and a parcel I was expecting at nine o'clock still hasn't arrived. So who knows, that might arrive in the middle of this. But that is working from home, Harriet. So I mean, I have the exact same issues. So my building work a minute ago were like doing the loudest bit of hammering on metal. So there's a big building site next door and I don't know how they time it, but every single time I have to be on a call with somebody, it's like, ta-da, now is the time to start hammering the metal. Yeah. So they've just stopped that. I'm hoping they're going on lunch. I was literally, as you were saying that, about to stop you and say, I'm sorry, my dog's about to jump on the bed. Do you mind? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, so this is just the joy of working from home, really. Real yeah. life, real people. Absolutely. <laughs> Tell me how far through writing a book about working from home were you when millions of people joined the gang of people who work from home? I was not. So it was commissioned in June of last year. 
I didn't write it because we were in a global pandemic and everyone was working from home. I wrote it because I have been a massive fan of working from home for 15 odd years. And I was basically like, oh, here is my moment to convert everybody else to my cult. (laughs) And I realized that we'd had this dramatic shift. I had friends who previously wanted to work from home, but felt absolutely that they couldn't. And now they were working from home and they were really dreading this idea of having to go back to an office full time. Obviously, working from home during a global pandemic is not the optimum version of working from home. Uh, absolutely. That was going to be my first not question. How it should be. But I do think it's afforded us an opportunity for businesses to see that working from home is possible and that actually you can be as productive, if not more productive when you're working from home and that you can still collaborate and you can still be creative and you can still bring in money when your staff are not physically in the same office. And so for those people who want to keep doing it, I felt like this was a moment to say, actually, let's get the proof of working from home so that when this pandemic is over and we're no longer government mandated to work from home, you can go to your boss and say, okay, actually, going forward, this is how I want my working life to work. And here's my plan for it. I've worked at home for seven years. And one of the things I've said to people consistently is, yes, you are technically working from home. But if you don't like it, the things that you don't like about it, I currently don't like about working from home either. I don't think this is the best representation. Yeah. You get to see a lot of the negatives without actually seeing a lot of the positives, which just by way of an example, if you get up early on a Wednesday morning and you get it all done. I mean, given that some people won't be Mm -hmm. able to do that because they may have to be there to answer a phone. You can go at the garden centre on a Wednesday afternoon. You can go at the cinema on a Wednesday afternoon. The joy. You, yeah. You can go and have lunch with your friends if you're lonely, which you do get mm-hmm. lonely. I've got a lot of friends that work from home. We have a kind of lunch club. We actually had a Lovely. Christmas dinner together. <laughs> and that is what people won't be seeing now. It probably feels a lot more isolating than it actually is. Well, I think right now your circumstances are really dictating your experience of it rather than you dictating your experience of it, right? So if you are single and living alone and you are not allowed to socialize with anybody else and you are literally just stuck in your house 24 hours a day, (laughs) (laughs) working from home, it just feels like the most isolating experience ever. And equally, if you are stuck in a house with somebody who at the start of it, you're like, oh, it's so lovely coming home to them every day. And then you see them every single day and now just want to kill them and want nothing more than a bit of space. It feels incredibly claustrophobic. So the real joy for me of working from home is that it affords a level of freedom and it affords a level of flexibility with how you design your own life. Unfortunately, Those two things are not in high abundance Mm. right now, but hopefully they're coming back soon. The upside that people will definitely be seeing is the commute from Mm -hmm. my bedroom to my desk. takes me approximately 30 seconds. And I used to go into London every Monday. I get a lot of work done on a Monday morning. Even even there were times when I would work on a train and I could Mm -hmm. get work at you then, I still get so much work done on a Monday morning that I didn't. So... People will be enjoying more time, I would hope, well, at the moment. I hope so. And I think you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that actually this is a chance to kind of experiment with your ideal working times. So you know, I used to really believe that I was not a morning person because by the time I got into the office, it would take me kind of two hours to get going. 
And then when I started working from home, what I noticed was I could wake up at six, get really probably a morning, if not more's work done before eight o'clock. And I had loads of energy and I was really enthusiastic for it. And I was really creative at that time. I get all my writing done. And so I was like, this is really weird because I always thought I was not a morning person. And actually what I was not was I was not a commuting person. Mm-hmm. And that energy and that creativity was completely dulled by spending an hour jammed into somebody's armpit on a smelly tube. There was a learning there for me, which is actually working from home gave me the ability to maximize my productivity to, and we can talk about kind of the concept of toxic productivity, but really to like say, actually, when do I work best? and work at that time rather than have the times I work be dictated by somebody's idea of when I should work best. Funnily enough, I had a problem with sleeping recently mm. rather than just lie there. About yeah. four o'clock, I thought, now nah, this isn't happening. And I got up and I started working. And I felt like I needed to go and visit my father's grave and tell him that he was actually right. Aww. All the yeah. years that he said to me, oh, you get so much done if you get up early. And I'd been <laughs> one of those people that had been like, no, I hate it. I hate the morning. I'm useless in the morning. <laughs> there was nobody knocking at the front door. There was yeah. nobody sending me an email. There was nobody cold calling me at 5 a.m. Yeah. All of the tiny interruptions that you get. It was amazing. I haven't stuck with it because I do still quite like a lie-in and I still do quite like a late night. But I think there's definitely something that you say about the productivity at a certain time Mm. of day that maybe I had never even considered. Well, I actually have a great friend who doesn't have an alarm clock. She wakes up at whatever time she wakes up and her morning routine is as she wakes up, she'll go and have a shower. She might go for a little walk around the block, just get some air. She'll have a coffee and then she gets back into bed for an hour and reads for an hour. And then she'll start work. And she usually starts work at kind of 10, 30, 11 ish. And she's like, there's no point in me starting work anytime before then, because my brain is not in the right place. Yeah, It'll take me ages. I won't be focused. And what we haven't allowed for in our working culture anywhere is for the fact that people are different. You yeah. know, we like to work in different ways. I read a really interesting thread the other day on Twitter, and I'm so angry with myself that I didn't <laughs> like or retweet it at that moment and then it just vanished you know when you're like where's it gone and it's so annoying when that happens it was by a guy who was basically working on a study about what he thought companies would do when the Mm. pandemic was over and what the options were and what the worries and the concerns were and obviously it's this huge sort of socio-political sort of thing going on I mean one of the things I was interested about was he was predicting a huge leap in RSI yes now I work at my desk. I sit on currently a (laughs) dining chair, which is ridiculous. I should be in a better chair than this. And I make myself laugh because when I worked at a newspaper, inside a newspaper for years, every so often someone would come with a clipboard and say, like, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. You need to adjust your chair by two centimetres. You need to lift your screen. If that person walked into my office now, they would be horrified. (laughs) Now, a lot of people hopefully have been set up by their company but perhaps for people who were freelancing and going into an office and using their setup Mm -hmm. what tips would you give people to to better look after their physical health working at home and I say all of this caveated by the fact that we're recording this podcast and I'm sat on my bed but the first and most important thing you can do is to create a space which is going to be your workspace so 
some of us, I mean, I live in a tiny, tiny apartment in London, right? So my workspace is literally a small desk and a small chair, but it's still the workspace. And I've had to take a bit of space out of my hallway for that to exist, but it's a dedicated space. And that's really important, partly because it allows our minds to switch on and off. So when we sit at our workspace, we're in work mode. When we leave it, we're out of work mode. Um, But also it means you can do things like think about getting a desk at the correct height and a chair that supports you. And if you invest in nothing else, invest in those two things. If you are freelance, freelance and in the UK, you can usually write them off against tax. So if you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I've got the money, or I don't know if I can do it, talk to an accountant, um, have a Google, but you can, office equipment is tax deductible. Think about all those things that you would have if you were in an office with somebody telling you. So I know for me, I'm quite short. So whenever I've been in an office, the thing they've said is you need to put something under your feet so your feet are supported on a firm surface because usually they don't quite touch the ground. (laughs) You need to be, so when your elbows are bent and at 90 degrees, your hands should just be about touching your desk. You need to make sure your back is supported. So that means adjusting your chair so that you're not sitting too far forward or too far back. All of these really simple things in the short term feel like a bit of a fuss and in the long term will literally save your physical health. Mm-hmm. I also say to all freelancers, you know, the best thing you can do is invest in health insurance and critical illness insurance. I had last year, I have to check in because I always forget where, which year I'm, but last year <laughs> yeah. my back started to ache and I went to my GP about it and all the various usual things and I have health insurance. Just went off to see a surgeon and they were like, mm, no, it's basically about as bad a slip disc as you're going to get. You need to operate on it. And if I'd been waiting for that on the NHS, it would have taken probably three to five years. Wow. Yeah. And I was in a place where I literally, I was doing like calls lying down on my bed because I couldn't stand up. I was on huge amounts of painkillers. I was on antidepressants, which they give you when you've got bad back because actually it's so depressing having a bad back. Mm. So if you're going to invest in something, invest in something that's going to allow you a so you don't get the bad back in the first place get a good chair and b so if you do get ill you can get quick support on it because as a freelancer you are responsible for your own livelihood mm. nobody's going to give you sick pay yeah i'm changing the way i'm sitting while i'm having this i know i, 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 I mean i, I said you know do as i say not as i do but <laughs> <laughs> Now, one of the upsides that people may have noticed is they're not commuting, so they're seeing a, a yeah. bit more money. But the downside that they're probably seeing is that their gas bill has shot up enormously <laughs> because nobody yeah. wants to work in a freezing cold house. Mm-hmm. How do you think stuff evens out over time? Depending upon where you're commuting from. So when I lived down in Kent and I was commuting into London, it was, I think it was about eight grand a year. Wow. I mean, it was it was extortionate exactly whereas if you're in london you're commuting london it's 120 a month so it is i think cheaper to stick your heating on <laughs> rather than to commute but it's also about being aware that actually you might not want to be in your house the whole time one of the things that i really loved about working from home was that actually i didn't work from home all the time usually at least once a day i would go out to a coffee shop and i'd work for a co- from a mm. coffee shop for a couple of hours I was a member of a co-working space, so I'd go there for maybe a day a week. I do think you need to watch out for your costs. So the flip of it is that you save because you don't buy a prep lunch every day, but you then spend that money on cooking really fancy things because you're at home and you want something delicious. Mm. You know, maybe you're not buying as many kind of work outfits in quotes because we're only ever seen from the waist up, so we don't have to. But the flip of that is that actually then when you do, you spend a load of money on something really fabulous because you want to feel good when you're working. 
it is a little bit about how we balance it out. One of the things that I'm concerned about is that as more people work from home, what we'll start to see are companies doing location-based salaries, which I am very anti. So this is Facebook announced they were going to do this, which is basically they were going to allow all of their workforce to work from home as much or as little as they wanted. But if you were working from home and home wasn't San Francisco and the very expensive rents in San Francisco, then your salary would be deducted accordingly. Now, no, I, I personally like believe idea. you should get no, absolutely not. I personally believe you should get paid what the job is worth, and what the job is worth is what you get paid, no matter where you are. And if the job needs you to be in a specific location, then the job has to factor that in. But if the reality is the job is worth fifty grand a year, the job is worth fifty grand a year, regardless of where you are. But I think companies might try and do it. There's a class-based aspect there mm-hmm. in that so. you know if you come from quite a nice middle class family and you live in Hackney you're going to be paid Mm -hmm. more than someone who lives in Hull absolutely and it's also this kind of sort of slightly weird idea that somehow just because you have made the very sensible choice to go somewhere where living costs are lower that therefore you should be penalized for that which I find really bizarre like that's that's a personal choice I want to I want a pay rise one year so I'm going to move somewhere more expensive just to get the pay rise I find it very odd It also, and it ties into what my next question is, which is Mm. staff morale and staff interaction with each other. It also makes you know specifically who's being paid more than you. Oh, absolutely. And that can cause issues between staff. And also, you know, can you imagine feeling that you and the person who's, you know, in quotes, it's next to you, obviously not literally, but the person who's doing exactly the same job as you, but one of them is being paid 10 grand more simply because they've chosen to live in a more expensive part of the country. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's really odd to me. Do we then start saying, well, actually, if you don't have kids, we're going to pay you less than somebody who does have kids because they've got more outgoings? No, we wouldn't say that. So let's get on to staff morale and how we interact with each other. The little moments that you share with colleagues when you go into the kitchen to make a cup of tea Mm -hmm. and they are in there making a cup of tea or you go outside for a cigarette and they are there or you bump into them in the car park. The the value in those things where you say things like, oh, did you find a plumber? Or, oh, how was your mum? We are not having those interactions and therefore we lose empathy with Mm -hmm. our colleagues and it's easier to get really annoyed with them when they don't send you an email that they should have. Mm. Whereas perhaps if you had bumped into them in the corridor and seen they looked exhausted, you may have yeah. been less. How do we get over that? How do we keep people as a team in a situation where everybody is working hundreds of miles apart in some situations? Mm. So I think there's sort of a couple of things to unpack here, which is one There are some studies that right now we have less empathy for our colleagues. There's a really interesting report actually from the US, which showed that bankers in New York, the number of people reporting their colleagues to the SEC, which is the kind of regulator for New York bankers, for dodgy dealings and insider trading and all that sort of thing, numbers had absolutely shot up. Because somebody doing something a bit dodgy when you're sat next to them, feels like you're somehow involved in it and you're sort of or you know them as a person and you can kind of see what they're doing whereas somebody doing something a bit dodgy and then joking about it on the whatsapp group is like okay let's just snap that and send it over Mm. now there's a strong argument that says that's actually a good thing and we should be reporting our colleagues if they're breaking the law but i can understand why for businesses that feels really like you're losing that team spirit 
And for me, I think what this shows is businesses that have a strong sense of culture versus businesses that don't. So if you as a business are relying on a building to give you your culture, you have not done enough work around who you are as an organization, what your values are and how you show them through your work. Bravo. (laughs) Thank you. I think a lot of businesses are really going to struggle with that in the coming years because they haven't done that work or they haven't really given it the time and attention that it deserves. So their employees don't really know what it is. They don't know what it is to be a member of this group. They don't know what it is to be a member of this company and how that membership then behaves and acts. And then we say, well, we can't do this in a virtual world. We have to be together to do it. Well, no, because if we think about it, you are probably a member of some Facebook groups, probably have several WhatsApp groups on your phone, and you intrinsically understand the behaviors that are acceptable in those groups. And you intrinsically understand how to build relationships within those groups, right? We understand those rules virtually for other organizations and for other communities that we're part of. So it's possible then that we can do the same for our workplaces. I learned the most about being a journalist or doing my job from the people who sat near me and were really nice and really helpful. Firstly, how if you are a young person and you're in a new job, mm. it's, it's horrible to have to keep being the person who asks, for, keep saying, I don't quite know how to make this work or I don't really understand yeah. this. That must be dreadful if you actually have to email someone rather than you could just wander past someone's desk and say, <laughs> you don't mind just coming over. Good question. Yeah. yeah. So firstly, if you're in that situation, and secondly, if you have a young person that you, you're trying to keep an eye on, how, how do we mm. help that? How do we make sure that training continues to take place? I think it's a really good question. And I do think this is one of the, probably one of the areas where, if we're being honest, working from home works best as a hybrid model. So when you have a work in an office space and you move between them, it's really important that managers understand that their job is managing. And part of that is training, it's, bring, it's mentoring, it's bringing people on. I actually started a freelance job during the pandemic for a very big, big, big organization with multiple hierarchies, multiple departments, hundreds of backstories and everybody's relationships and why they did things the way they did things. And I never spent any time in the office with them. There was no office, nobody was there. It was all virtual. And it really became apparent to me how important kind of documentation and understanding that documentation is. So how important things like org charts are, how important things like regular roundups of what's happening in the department is, how important it is to have regular department catch-ups. But also we need to think about how do we formalize some of those informal structures? So how do you make sure that all new starters have an actual buddy system that works as opposed to somebody who's introduced you as your buddy by HR on day one and then you never see them again? How do you make sure that you are regularly introducing and expanding the network of young people in your organization? Yeah. How can we write down some of that stuff that we learnt on the job or, as you say, by osmosis because you're in the room and you're seeing it's happening? How do you write down and actually train some of that properly? And also, let's not underestimate the fact that people do pick things up by osmosis even when they're not in the same room. So. Mm. We learn, you might not be learning from your direct peers. You might be learning from somebody in another company who's talking about something they were doing on social media or who's been interviewed on a podcast about something they're doing. Uh, You might learn it from going to an event and seeing how people are interacting at that. I think where we will end up with remote work is we will end up in a world where 
we spend part of our time in offices and part of our time at home. And I suspect what will happen is that actually when you are more junior, you spend more of your time in the office and less time at home, partly because of that learning, but also because as I think a lot of people have forgotten when you're 22 in your first job, you don't have a spare room to be your office. No. You know, <laughs> you have a tiny, tiny bedroom that is in a house you're sharing with 10 other people, all of whom are trying to get on the Wi-Fi for a video call at the same time. Yeah. So actually we will need to businesses need to adapt and take that into account. I find this situation incredibly interesting because, yeah. I mean, the whole thing essentially is that we have just conducted the most enormous experiment for a year. <laughs> and if we don't take time to learn from the results of that experiment, then we are absolute idiots because the issues like childcare mm -hmm. that you think yeah. you know for a lot of women who've asked for years to work at home and have been told no now that they, they prove they can't that's amazing for them yeah. for other people that are quite introverted or not even introverted antisocial maybe like me yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it works really well but for other people it's been it's been a real struggle and I have lots of sympathy for people who they would never have chosen this and it's been it's been put on them but they need to Yes, everybody can learn from that experience. Absolutely. Otherwise, what was it all for? I mean, I think, so I think the latest research that came out was businesses showing around 66% of workers saying they didn't want to go back to the office full time, which is the majority, mm. but it's not the vast majority, you know? Mm. And so understanding that as a business and understanding, okay, how do we create a model of working because it has to flex on both sides right as an mm. employee you can't just turn around and say do you know what I actually I've been working from home five days a week and I never want to come back to the office ever 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 even though that's what the business really wants yeah well that's not going to work there has to be a flex on both sides but actually finding a way that you can say to your employees the most important thing is that you work in a way that's going to bring the best out of you and then from there, then we work down to, okay, what does that look like for us as an organization? And that, I think, would be a really great answer to the whole of the last 18 months. Yeah. I, like you, I don't know that I could ever go back in. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> I could, I mean, it's things like I could never go back into an office. I could never have a boss again. <laughs> I, I admit that I think I must have been an absolute nightmare for everyone I've ever worked with. So <laughs> I don't even own any clothes that are suitable for an office anymore. This has been brilliant, Harriet. I'm going oh, to say thank you. That's great questions. I loved it. Working from home, available from all good bookshops now. Where can people find you on the socials if they'd like to? You can find me at Harriet Minter on all the socials. Terrific. That's sensible. No underscores. No, I got in there early. Early adopter. <laughs> hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mick's had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column, so this has worked out rather well. Hannah, Jen, I would like to talk about the past hooray i like the past do you remember 2012 that was good wasn't it 
It was good, Jen, but I am talking even further back than then. This segment of the podcast is sponsored by Ancestry, which has been helping people shed light on family history for the past 25 years. So I'm talking, well, ancestors, obviously. Do either of you know much about yours? Um, yeah, I know some about mine, but my family is full of bigamists and people who've been to prison and people who changed their name for who knows what reason and people who were raised thinking someone was their father and it turned out when they saw their birth certificate, he wasn't. So it's complicated, is what I'm going to say. It's like a Mike Lee drama, my family <laughs> history. That's what I know. Mine's a bit less exciting than that, to be honest, uh, except for one thing that I'm not going to mention on here, frankly. Uh, <laughs> my mum, actually, is a bit, of a, a bit of a keen genealogist, so she's dabbled a bit with ancestry in the past, and uh, she's very excited indeed that we're doing something for the podcast with ancestry. Yeah, un- until very recently, my family tree was sketchy, to say the least, mm. particularly on my mum's side, and that's partly because my grandma was a big believer in secrets, And partly because women are a bit trickier to research. Why is that, Mick? Is that because loads of records only list women by their married name or, in fact, their full husband's name rather than their actual name? Bingo bongo! Let's do a quick quiz to prove that point. In what year were mothers' names, and not just fathers' names, first added to British marriage certificates? Oh, if I'd known there was a quiz. (laughs) um, 1920. 1950. 2018. What? And in fact, the legislation was finally passed, signed, sealed and delivered this very month of March 2021. So, Jen, you've just done a baby. In what year was a mother's occupation, and not just the father's, first added to her baby's birth certificate? Oh, um, oh, because I've just done one of those and my name is on it, as is my occupation. 1985. Oh, so close. 1984. Oh, oh. I, <gasps> I was literally just going to guess yeah, that. Yeah, of course you were. I was. <laughs> I've been robbed. I've been robbed. Where's the quiz prize? Where's the quiz prize? <laughs> it's not just hatches, matches and dispatches either. You all know how I feel about history. And if you don't, I want to dry hump it. And there are loads of historical records that take you deeper into the experiences of women in your family history, including women in the workplace, women fighting for social change, and, oh yes, please, women during wartime. So the information is out there to be found. It is. And what I would say is carve yourself out a good chunk of time because rooting around in your extended family's back catalogue is very addictive. I've lost at least four days in a Noonan Philpot wormhole and regret nothing. Turns out my great granddad on my mum's side was a World War One hero. Ooh. So I had a look at my great granddaunt Hannah Kirby. She was my mum's maternal grandpa's sister, born in eighteen sixty seven in Leeds, and they were a working class family in Leeds, my mum tells me. But I didn't realise that she was the fifth of eight kids, so apparently likely to have been helping out with her younger siblings, including hot topic guys homeschooling my great grandpa. So she must have either loved that or hated it, depending on your point of view, so much that she took up teaching as a profession. And according to our research, she was an assistant schoolmistress. And because she never married, she was able to continue her job as a teacher. And by 1939, she'd retired and she died in Leeds in 1956, having lived there her whole life. I was actually quite surprised by the level of detail they were able to find. 
including that she'd left all of her money to the children of one of her sisters. Interesting. Yeah. Although, Jen, just to be clear from what I've learned about my family tree, eight kids ain't a lot of kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, but how do we mere mortals outwit the patriarchy of the past to find out about the excellent women in our family tree? Excellent question. And one to which Jennifer Utley from Ancestry has the answers. So, Jennifer, you are the executive story producer at Ancestry, and I would like to know, what are your hottest tips for finding more information about the women in our family trees? Oh, I'm glad you asked, because this is one of my favourite topics. Let's just get started with where you should begin any family tree. You start with what you know. So, go to Ancestry, you add yourself, and you add your parents. And the first tip that I'd give you, especially for females in your family tree, is some people will put in their mother's name with their married name. And it's essential that when you start out your tree, you use the names that the women were born with. Mm -hmm. We want those maiden names in the tree because as women go throughout life, they could add a couple of names, maybe even some names that you haven't heard about, (laughs) but they're going to appear in the records at the very beginning with the names they were given at birth. The second thing I'd say is when we're in records, we tend to use the most formal versions of our names. Mm -hmm. So when you think about Grandma Peg or Grandma Peggy, you have to ask yourself, was her name Margaret, right? (laughs) Was Bitsy Elizabeth, right? My grandma's name was Beth, but her name was Elizabeth. So you want to make sure you get those names in. And you might have to look up and say, what is this name short for? People don't go from Peggy to Margaret really easily. So what could this name be? Interesting, in the background in Ancestry, we have all these naming dictionaries. Did you know that there's like 800 ways to spell the name Catherine? 800? 800, because Catherine's a very common name, and there's lots of different places, and it's there's just so many different ways that you can spell it, that in the background, we're working through that, and we're programming that in the searches to look for you. That's blown my mind, Jennifer. You've blown my mind. <laughs> Yeah, but don't let that like overwhelm you. Just to make sure that you get in the names that you know with the spelling that you know. The next thing I'd, I'd have you do is pay attention to her children. What are the names of all of her children? What are the names of all of her siblings? Because sometimes you feel like, you know, I'm not finding this person. Or maybe your name is Elizabeth Smith, right? You're looking for an Elizabeth Smith and boy, there are a lot of Elizabeth Smiths out there. So how do you find yours? So you might feel like if you've only got the one sibling and you're looking for the parents, you might not have what you need. For instance, so I have a family that was in the Channel Islands, and this is my third great-grandmother. Her name was Suzanne. Couldn't find her, couldn't find her. I looked at all of her siblings, and I picked the person with the most unique name. So she has a sister named Lavinia. So I started looking for Lavinia, and Lavinia broke it all open for me because I could find who Lavinia's parents were okay. and where Lavinia was. She was just easier to find in the records because her name was a little more unique, Lavinia Triplet. And then the other awesome side benefit was, boy, learning about Lavinia was great too. Like this <laughs> is my third great aunt who had a fantastic story. So look at the siblings and her children and see if one of those people can give you the hint to get to the next level. The next hint I would say is you have to look at all the men in her life. What's her father doing? What's her brother doing? What's her husband doing? What are her sons doing? Because that gives you context about what's going on in her life. The women in our ancestry 
usually weren't the ones making the land transactions or starting the businesses, Mm -hmm. but they were standing next to the men who were doing that. If the men are going off to war, what are the women back home doing, right? Like they've got to hold down the fort. They've got to provide for the family. They've got to maybe even work outside of the home in order to supplement that. So taking a look at what the men are doing, even even a brother can tell you a little bit more about what's going on with the sister. Yeah, we'll allow it then. Yeah, it, it's, it's disappointing. But at the same time, it's always good to follow the money when you're looking at records <laughs> because we're good at keeping track of money. And then once you gather a bunch of records, I like to put a woman's life in a timeline so you can see the major points in her life because it's a big deal to her when her first child is born, right? It's also a big deal to her when her father dies because she's a living, breathing thing, right? She's not just a name on a pedigree chart. So it's good to like stack up all those records that you find and then see what you can do about reading in between the lines. Like, what's going on between the 1901 census and the 1911 census? Like, is she in a different place? Do they have more money? Are they renting? Are they owning? Like, what can you learn from looking from one to the next? And then I love to ask myself, why is she here? My Lavinian Suzanne that I was talking about, their family starts in Devon, and I find them on the Isle of Jersey in the Channel Islands. And you're like, what are you guys doing here? Like, <laughs> how did you get here? And then they end up in London. And then I find Lavinia at 16 on a boat going to the United States with an infant in her arms. Wow. So you're like, why? So you ask yourself why and try and understand those questions, which is a great time to bring in the historical context. What's going on at the time? You know, Lavinia is on a boat going to America in 1863. That's during the Civil War with an infant. She amazes me. What are you doing, Lavinia? But she's kind of my favorite person to look at. So yeah, look at the historical context and look at all the records and see if you can put together a narrative about them. And then tell yourself a story and tell your family about it. Like just telling them makes you think about her as a character in a story. And then when you're telling it to your son or your husband or your mother, they ask questions and then you even learn more about her and you make her more of a well-rounded person. Those are the things I like to do to just get started. You mentioned records there and there is access to a lot, and I mean a lot, of archives. Some people might find that overwhelming. Even as a journalist, I was like, wow, that is is a lot to go through. How do you approach and navigate these? For sure. I mean, when there are 2 billion records for the UK and Ireland on our site, That's almost as many ways as you can spell the name Catherine. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Well, there's so there's 2 billion, but then there's like 27 billion worldwide, and that can be overwhelming. And that's why we really work on our search algorithms to help people find it. Because you don't care about the 2 billion. You care about that one person. Mm -hmm. You want her. You want to find your female in the tree. You're looking for her. So we spend a lot of money every year on those search algorithms. But then we also make it so you can go into the individual databases. And so it's good to, like, get an idea of what those main ones are that can tell you about your female ancestors. The ones that you always start with are, like, birth, marriage, and death, Mm -hmm. right? Those seem really straightforward. And then when you find something like a marriage record, uh, it very often will give you the names of the father. So you can push it back into the thing because you learn about the father. On lots of death records, you can figure out it will list the names of their parents. So that helps you 
add more names to your family tree. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, birth, marriage, and death, that's a good place to start. But there's lots of other cool places. I really love the 1911 census. That's a really nice place, a really easy place to start because people have an idea of who they should be able to find in 1911. A census record is just the government's going through every 10 years and taking a list of everyone in the nation. Genealogists are clever people. They're going to use whatever records are available to try and learn something from them about their families. And census records are particularly good because it's like a snapshot of the family in time. So you get the household of the family. So you you know who's leading the household. You know the ages of people. You know whether they're married. You can find out what they're doing as occupations. If I talk about Suzanne and Lavinia, they are teenagers on the Isle of Journey, and they are fancy paper stainers. And I'm like, what's the fancy paper stainer? (laughs) But I looked. Their father's a cabinet maker, and they are making the paper that's lining the cabinets. Okay, So they have a really unique job that I had never heard before, but these fancy paper stainers, I learned that because of the 1911 census. So it's good to see, like, what are people doing? How long have they been in school? Where were they born? There's lots of different things that you can find on the census records. So that's a really easy, accessible place to start because it's not too long ago. I mean, you have to wait 100 years for a census to be released, but that's usually the one where it's easiest for people to get started. I love that you have a favorite historical record. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the other thing is there's a really amazing question on the 1911 census. It asks all the women, how many children did you have that who were born alive? And how many are still living today? And just that one question, like if she's answering that she had 10 children and there are only eight living, that tells you, you know, big story about this woman's life she's lost two children and it's just a number on a census record so when I say like look at the records and read between the lines there's so much that you can learn just by thinking about all the answers to these questions so that one's a pretty special record one of my other favorites though is the 1939 registry in the 1939 registry what they were doing is they were making a list so they could do the national identity cards And so they made a list of everyone uh, in the nation. But then they kept using the list and augmenting the list. And one of the great things is I was searching for someone just two days ago, and I found her on the 1939 registry, and her maiden name was crossed out, and her married name was written on the top of it. And I could read both of them really easily. Oh, wow. And it's not very often where you see an annotated record like that because – you might not know a maiden name. You might only know a married name or vice versa, right? So you always have to be paying attention to what names the women have at what point in time. The 1939 register is just pure gold. You can see all these crossed up names of these women because they've kept track of the name changes for you, which is just brilliant. This is great information. Thank you. You have given us some incredible bouncing off points. Oh, so happy to do it. Just remember that You know, those women are more than just names and dates on your tree. Like, they went through hard times. We're going through hard times. Maybe we can learn something from them. Shall we end on some facts discovered by Ancestry about women using those very methods? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. Kofo Warola Abeni Pratt, whose name can be found in the UK and Ireland nursing registers, 1898 to 1968 became the first qualified black nurse to work in the NHS in 1950 having completed her training at the Nightingale School in St Thomas's Hospital in London. 
The number of female soldiers 100 years ago is impossible to calculate. There were historical instances of women joining the army in disguise, but this was considered illegal and we don't know exactly how many women tried this. But we do know that Flora Sandys was the first British female soldier to officially serve in the First World War. Good honour. Yeah. Mm. My favourite comes from the 1911 England census, which some of those in support of the suffragette movement used to make their views known. Louisa Burnham of London was all business on her form, stating, No vote, no census. If I am intelligent enough to fill in this census form, I can surely make an X on a ballot paper. Yes, Louisa! To find your own family tree of facts and stories, head to ancestry.co.uk and get rummaging. I like that word. Have a good, a good rummage through your family <laughs> history. <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which comedy drama, which was very much neither, did you have us watching this week? Oh, guys... This week, we watched 1991's Buddy Song, fame vehicle for the one-hit wonder and the one and only, see what I did there, Chesney Hawks, also starring Roger Daltrey, Sharon Juice and Michael Elphick. Now, I want to begin this, uh, if I may, with a... Dis- Is it with an apology? <laughs> no, I'll get there, I'll get there. With a discovery I made while researching the film. Now... As you know, I'm a fan of Charlton Athletic and very famously, The Who played a gig at the Valley, that's our stadium, in 1976, which was the loudest rock concert ever, guys, just FYI. And that's actually just an irrelevant bit of trivia for you. It's fair to say, I was surprised to learn that this film, this film was in fact produced by, as well as Daltrey himself, because... He had to have produced it, didn't he? Otherwise, how the fuck did yeah, it get made? Yeah, I wasn't made? surprised. But <laughs> I was surprised that it was also produced by Bill Kerbishley, manager of The Who, and older brother of Charlton Athletic legend Alan Kerbishley, who managed the club from 1991 to 2006. So what I'm saying, guys, straight off the bat, is that with one hand the Lord giveth, and with the other, <laughs> he very much taketh away. So... Back to the film, which is based on a novel by the same name, written by Nigel Hinton. I don't know a lot about the novel, but I do know some people who studied it at school, so I assume it wasn't... What? what? Yeah. <laughs> so I assume it wasn't considered to be like... And we've got no time to learn about culture. What the fuck? It must have been on the curriculum at some point, right? So anyway, the film was directed by Claude Wattam. I think that's how you pronounce it, whose filmography consists largely of TV movies. And let's not fuck around here. That is exactly what this film is. It reeks of TV movie, like it stinks of it. I have to steal a line from the Empire <laughs> review of this film because it's, it's wonderful and it says a lot. Set in cinematic slough. Hawks, uh, that's the line, cinematic slough. Anyway, Hawks stars as the eponymous buddy a teenage wannabe rock star named after Buddy Holly because his dodgy dad, Terry, played by Daltrey, is from the past. And you can tell he's from the past <laughs> because of his hair, his clothes and his attitude towards women, which fucking sucks. One yeah. woman in particular, Buddy's mum, Carol, played by Sharon Juice. She's had enough of him getting into scrapes with dodgy Des, played by Michael Elphick, and doing Bird, which I actually don't think is unreasonable, Carol if I'm honest, so sorry to be a square. 
The people in the film would think that you're out of order there, Jen. They seem to think it's perfectly unreasonable for Carol to want to live a different life. Problems in the relationship arise as Carol tries to better herself and progress in the workplace while Terry wants to fuck around and get Buddy, who is apparently all right at music, a record deal. And again, Carol, I hear you. Chesney himself will tell you, I'm sure, that the music industry is tough. Is it a film about wanting more from life? Is it a film about being sad that your parents split up? I I certainly wanted more from life when I was watching it, I have to say. I struggle to understand what the point of it all was, if I'm honest, other than that to reaffirm that the album track Nothing Serious remains an absolute banger and I'll never understand why they release Secrets of the Heart and not this one. But um, the Wikipedia entry for this film doesn't even bother to allude to critical reception, but the Empire Review wasn't great. So, guys, guys, I think I probably already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Had you seen it before? No. I, while I was watching it, was like, bits of this feel familiar but I don't know if that's from some of the dodgy men in my family and it just felt very familiar that way. Or whether it was from some sort of public service film I'd watched. I kept waiting for a kid to climb a pylon. Also, the band, anything that had the band in it, and by the band I mean the one that had Nick Moran yeah. and a massively over-enthusiastic Lee Ross, that everything in that reeks of an advert I don't know, for cornflakes or something. Oh, for milk. From, I was going to say for milk. <laughs> yeah. So I was eight years old when this film came out and I was in love with Chesney Hawks, right? I was like properly, properly. <laughs> well, there had to be a reason for this. Exactly. Surely. I was properly in love with Chesney Hawks. I had his posters on my wall. I one day came back from Horse Rangers camp. There's a lot of revelations coming out here now to find that my brothers had taken down every poster of Chesney Hawks and replaced it with an unflattering picture that Stephen, who was pretty good at art, had drawn of Chesney Hawks, complete with, like, massive mole on the face. Um, <laughs> Stephen had... They were doing the Lord's work, in my opinion. Well, I, was, <laughs> I was very upset. But also Stephen had quite a big mole on his face, which Michael and I have reflected on uh, in, in years since then as a bit of a hypocrite. But anyway... So I don't know if I owned this film. I don't think so, but I definitely got the soundtrack for my ninth birthday. And I'll apologise to my entire family now (laughs) who had to listen to it on the way to Pleasurewood Hills, East Anglia's premier theme park, which is where... Uh, We used to go on holiday there. (laughs) Which is where I elected to celebrate my ninth birthday. I don't know what to say about this film other than... I'm just sorry would do, Jen. Just, just... <laughs> Shall we start? I have, I have two fun facts before we continue, Jen, mm. that I think you might like. Well, one of them is more an opinion than a fun fact, and my opinion is the one and only is an absolute banger. So it's a banging pop tune. No. I mean, relative. Come yeah. on, Hannah. We're, we're starting with a very low bar here. It's a good but pop song. I think yeah, it's I a decent no, pop I, song. I didn't even like it when I was the age that I should have liked it, so that, that's a no from me. But I don't think Chesney Hawks has got a very good voice. Throughout Buddy's song, it sounds like a tape that's worn out. He just sounds really warbly. But here's a fun fact, Jen, that I think you will appreciate. There is a Twitter account called at Chesney Hawks' Mole. And there is also a Twitter account called at Noel Edmonds' Hair. And sometimes they interact. (laughs) Why don't I know about these already? Hit the follow button immediately. All I can say about this film, Jen, is that I sent Mickey a message yesterday that said that I woke up and my very first thought was, oh, fuck, what if Jen still really likes this film? (laughs) (laughs) I could just see it being the end of Standard Issue forever. The thing that surprised me about it 
watching it again, apart from how shit it was. Because I actually think even age nine, I knew it wasn't very good because the acting is awful. And I, I definitely knew at that age that the acting was Well, R- Roger Daltrey's acting just involves going, <laughs> at the end of every line he says. <laughs> I think he's actually worse than Chesney Hawks. <laughs> and he's been oh, in other films. It's a charisma vacuum all round. I was surprised by how bleak it is. It's so fucking bleak. Like No one is having a nice time no. in that film. And it's a horrible message because we're clearly supposed to root for Roger Daltrey's yes. character. As Hannah said to me, she's just like, I think he's supposed to be like a Del Boy kind of character. And it's like, except Del Boy was nice to his wife and like tried to do good by his family. Whereas he, like Roger Daltrey's character, Terry, is just a bully to everyone he just ruins everything he ruins the wedding that he goes to he ruins the gig that he goes to in the pub he ruins everything he turns up he bulldozes people he tries to take over and he fucks it up and at the end we're supposed to go oh great everything's worked out all right for him it's vile the bit when they go to prison to see him and they sort of say that they're doing all right and he's like well i don't know why you'd want to like come and see me then and he gets up to go and you're like you fucking big baby twat man what but, am i supposed to feel sorry for you you bellend but buddy is vile as well yeah, yes. buddy says to his mum don't tell him that you did well in your exams because he'll be jealous but I mean, well, he'll working. feel bad he'll, feel, he'll bad. feel bad she's working to keep him while his dad who for some reason the message of the film is also like stick by your friends even if they're really fucking bad for you dad's in prison because of debts right so she's doing all this work and doing training for computers, which he mocks constantly, <laughs> despite the fact he then owns a VHS shop at the end of and it. Fair, fair enough, Hannah. Computers are never going to catch on. They're <laughs> never going to catch on. I absolutely hated it, yeah. Jen. I absolutely fucking hated it. It was an hour and 42 minutes long, and I watched the first hour by myself, and I couldn't go on. I had to wait to get Mickey to text me <laughs> to tell me so I was going that in. she was then at an hour so that I could do the last 42 minutes because I didn't think I'd be able to get through it. Um, Hannah lost the will to live at the terrible moment. <laughs> She just was like, I can't do this. I didn't even know what the terrible montage was. That didn't register. It's the montage where they were playing that song that was about his parents' love story. Oh, God, and it was yeah. intercut with her in, in a Vauxhall Corsa <laughs> and, like, copied <laughs> off with her boss. And also the Go one time on. that he, he ran her hand under a cold tap when she her hand was bleeding. And that was supposed to be, like, to show what a decent guy he was. That's it, oh. though, isn't it? There's There's nothing in that film that shows why those two ever liked each other in the first place. There's absolutely no chemistry. And I was like, if at the end of the film, Terry and Carol get back together, I'm going to scream. And I also think, like, whilst I hated this film and would hate it whenever I watched it, and its message about toxic masculinity is put up with it, which is horrible. I don't but it came at the end of that. a very bleak week for women when I was like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't good. I don't actually agree that the message is to put up with it because there is some pushback from Carol who's like, nah, fuck off, mate. And it, and I don't think the film implies that she's in the wrong. So I, I actually don't agree with that, but I do the agree. The film implies that she could go back to him at any point. I didn't get and that. And that she should. From it. And she does. She does go back to him. One of the ending things when the titles are coming up is those two kissing. Is it? Yes. <laughs> Oh, I didn't see yeah. that. I thought the ending was kind of like, okay, we're like all right with each other now. Nope. They do a kiss. So the other thing I wanted to mention was th- the tits. Um, because 
Can I just briefly interrupt Jen and say, up until this point, I was totally and utterly convinced that this was a film for children. The narrative was so simple and functional that then when those tits came up, I was like, oh my God, mind blown. This is for adults. So I was like, I don't remember this at all because I'm pretty sure that would have registered with a, a young me. I read that that scene was taken out for the VHS release because apparently a 12 certificate, although can you see tits in a 12? I don't, that shocked me a bit. But apparently a 12 certificate back then only existed for cinema releases. So I was really shocked by this when Elaine, who is a completely pointless character, who doesn't yeah. even serve as a plot device because the one thing she does doesn't actually result in any kind of different action, i.e. she shags his mate and then he goes, oh, I'm really angry to his mate and then his mate goes, I'm really sorry and then he goes, all oh, right, cool, we'll forget about it. So she takes her top off and the thing that shocked me the most about it, other than the fact that I didn't remember it, is that Liza Walker, who played her, was 19 years old when this film was made. Was that something that would have routinely happened back then? Because I'm pretty sure it wouldn't now, would it? What do you mean? That she's Young 19 years, years old. And she... Yeah, I think that would have happened all the time. I yeah. was so shocked by that. She And she looks so young. Yeah. And he's supposed to be 16, isn't he? Because he does the song, I'm a man, not a boy. Oh, oh, no, you are absolutely a boy, buddy. No men here, no men whatsoever, anywhere to be seen in this film, to be honest with you. Maybe Michael Alphix Des, but that's just because I've got a soft spot for Boone and I kept just putting that character on top of Des. Uh, Michael Alphix does do a good geezer. I actually think when he sleeps with Lisa Walker... It's it's sort of to show that he disrespects his mum as well because his mum walks in and he just stares her down. Mm. So it's like he is very much learning from his dad about how to treat women. Can we talk about that horrible house that they force her to move into? <laughs> the day completely foul and looks like partly like it's decorated from the 1970s, partly from the 1950s, partly from the 1980s. It managed to be a house that looked like a caravan at the same time, which is... <laughs> it looks like someone drank all of the McDonald's milkshake flavours, then danced until they were really energetically sick. But they <laughs> Just... put a reef, a fucking reef on the front door with their names on it. What the fuck? I don't know what your complaint is, Hannah. When Gary and I move house, we're getting Michael Elphick round to design it. <laughs> Can we talk about... His Buddy Holly shrine, which consists of just one photo of Buddy Holly, but like repeatedly, like, like the steakhouse I went to once that had the same picture of Sherry Blair all over the walls. It was very odd. Why? I do love that in films sometimes where they've just got the one photo. Did we see it? What other film did we see it in? 16 Candles. Pretty in Pink, that's the one. Yeah. Same diff. And they all had the very same like pose, black and white shot of the woman who was no longer in their lives, just in various different places around the house. It feels like lazy filmmaking, and that should not surprise any of us about this film. No. Of course, we haven't mentioned the fact that, because I watched this first, and I sent the message that went, why so many stars and bars? And I thought both of you then went, what the fuck, when you actually watched it? <laughs> that Confederate fucking flag is everywhere in the first five minutes of this. Because they like rock music, Hannah. Come on. But I was for ages. I was like, "Why are they talking in like British accents when they're clearly somewhere in the deep south?" I don't understand. I have never been to a bar with a Confederate flag in the UK. I don't think. No, um, I think I have been to Americana, in inverted comments, like sort of styled places that have had the confederate flag up Anyone? was it a pleasure with hills <laughs> probably quite possibly you know quite possibly um 
because obviously <laughs> it's the theme for anyone who doesn't know who hasn't had the pleasure of going to Pleasurewood Hills. It's poor bastards. That is the theme. It's fucking great. I used to love it there. I used to love it. Get the ski lift across the park. Great times. Um, Seriously though, Jen, I am re-watching Justified, as I've mentioned earlier, and it is set in Kentucky and it focuses quite a lot on a group of white supremacists and they have less Confederate <laughs> flags than at the start of Buddy's song. It was, yeah, it was a surprising amount, I would say. I Also, I would say that probably people in this country had less awareness of the uh, the connotations, shall we say, of the Confederate flag until comparatively recently. It's because they were too busy reading fucking Buddy's song. <laughs> Studying it, Hannah, not just reading it, really getting to grips with what the text <laughs> yeah. means. <laughs> I hope that that book is really, really, really fucking well written. Uh, otherwise, I yeah, I'm... I'll just let you know that the author of the book did write all of the songs that feature in Buddy's song. So whether well, that sways how you feel about <laughs> whether the book was really well written, Jen. Did I he? Don't know. Yeah. Did he? Mm. I missed that. What I was Nick Kershaw then. wrote One and Only, but all the rest. <laughs> Jen, I think it's crucial for the listeners yes. that you ask us this question. Yes, I agree. The time has come, guys. Do you think this film is rated or dated? Uh, um. uh. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm pleased to be able to use a superlative for this film because I think it might actually be the worst film I've ever watched. So I'm definitely going to oh. say dated. Wow. That is that's quite big talk, although I can see where, and I did see where Hannah is coming from. Yeah, it's, it's not aged well. It's definitely dated. I'm just going to say, Hannah, I don't think you've watched enough films on Channel 5 if, if you think that's the worst film. <laughs> I don't think I've watched. ever seen a film on Channel 5, to be honest. I wouldn't recommend it. Anyway, uh, yes, no, I, I, I agree with you. It's 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 so dated. It's, yeah, yeah. Oh, but bless little Jen. Bless little Jen. We know not what we do. I just loved him, you know. It's just blind, just blind devotion to, to Chesney Hawks. I still can't fathom that either. Me? But no judgment. <laughs> Thanks. A little bit of judgment. Um, Hannah, <laughs> what are you palate cleansing us with, hopefully, please, next week? Next week, I thought we'd watch Christopher Nolan's first film, Memento. Memento, which is 20 this year. It famously was a film that everyone said that you couldn't watch twice. But I was thinking that either... 20 years means I will have totally forgotten what happened in it, so I will be able to watch it again. Or perhaps if we do remember what happened, we might actually be able to watch the film rather than spend the time going, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. I do remember it. So I'm excited to watch it again for the reason you just stated. I don't think I've ever seen it, so we'll test that. It runs backwards is the long and short of it, Jeff. Good. I look forward to not understanding what's going on then. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.